Turn with me, if you would, please, to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 25 tonight. Exodus 2 at verse 11. First we'll read God's word and then we'll ask for his help and blessing. Exodus 2 beginning at verse 11 through the end of the chapter. This is God's holy word. Take care how you hear it. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he, went out in, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, He sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. Would you pray with me, friends? Oh, Lord, please give us your Spirit's help. Give us that ministry of illumination as we study your your word this night. Help us to read and to mark and to study and to learn and to listen and inwardly comprehend and then treasure up all that we read. Seal it to our hearts, we pray, for your glory and for our everlasting good. We do ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. During college, I worked a couple of summers at a Christian youth camp in northwestern Pennsylvania. One of the things that the campers loved to do was to take these long hikes through the woods and the extensive property of about the 500 acres of the camp property that we owned. Sometimes we'd go out and bring sleeping bags and go out on a clear night and we'd build a fire and sleep out under the stars. And often what would happen is one group would leave earlier than another because the trails could get crowded or, you know, because one group, quite frankly, wanted to squeeze in some extra time at the lake before we had to go out into the woods for the night. Well, the counselors would often need to map out our trek to the campsite because many of these trails were somewhat new and it was not, they were not always the most obvious of trails and they could not always be easily followed. Uh, as well, there weren't many signs out in the woods pointing us and directing us. 
So, often we would draw a simple map and plotted the lines using an old-fashioned compass and, uh, and pencils and rulers, nothing fancy. And you can imagine that with such precision at our fingertips that our wonderful maps and cartography were sure to be infallible. No, we found out the hard way that if two groups were to set out for the same destination, but one of the groups had the coordinates off just, just by a fraction of a degree, they would end up in an entirely different place than group one. For a while, as they set out, it would not seem to be making much difference at all. They would still be following the same general trajectory, still going up past the elephant tree, still going in a general southeastern direction towards the campsite. But over several miles of hiking, by the time they ought to have reached the campsites, the one with just those marginally incorrect coordinates would now be several miles away from his appropriate destination. It's a tiny miscalculation. A tiny miscalculation at first may not seem to affect very much. Well, it's a few centimeters on a map. But over the long haul, it has huge implications. And for us, it also meant having to call the camp director back at the lodge and ask him to come pick up the lost group in the camp van and give them a ride to the actual campsite before it got too dark and those fearsome northwestern Pennsylvania snipes came out for us. I say all of this because in the North American Protestant Church, we often have a miscalculation when it comes to reading our Bibles that will greatly and grossly affect how we read and understand events later. One commentator notes this in his remarks on Exodus chapter 2, if I may borrow from his insights. We, namely the North American Church, must come to grips with the question, who is the Bible mostly about? He says, I suspect many American Christians, maybe even some of us, even if we get the answer correct intellectually, functionally speaking, for many, the Bible is mainly about us. We are the central focus of its storyline. The Bible is mainly about us. And like our, our trek leaders at the camp who made a slight miscalculation at the outset of the hike, reading the Bible as though we were its center, doesn't seem to affect a great deal, right? There's still instruction in doctrine. There's still guidance for Christian living. But we've nevertheless badly miscalculated the coordinates. And ultimately, if we follow that trajectory out for years and years and years and years, we will end up wildly off course, miles away from where we're supposed to be. Friends, we are not the primary focus of the biblical story. The Bible is not mainly, mainly about us. The Bible is mainly about God. Yes, God's people absolutely have a, pl a, pl a place in the plot. God's church absolutely has a place in the plot. But mainly and primarily, the Bible is about God. He is its central character. He is the one to whom we must constantly direct our gaze. And when we put ourselves at the center of the story we inevitably distort the story, however unintentionally. When God is not the main actor, when God is not the central character, when God is not the, the hero of the biblical message, and instead we seek to make ourselves the heroes, then God is inevitably reduced to a supporting role in the cast of characters. Because in that scheme of thinking, what really is at the center of is ourselves, our comforts, our egos, and our agenda. Now, this is important for us to bear in mind as we study all of Exodus, and certainly as we study the second half of chapter 2, that the Bible is mainly, mainly about God. It's not mainly about Moses. 
It's not mainly about Israel. It's not mainly about Egypt. It's not mainly about you and me. It is mainly about God. Indeed, that is precisely the lesson that our friend Moses himself has to learn as we as God teaches it to him, even here in this passage. So let's turn our attention to Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. I want us to see two main themes here. First, in verses 11 through 22, we see that God crafts or God shapes his servant. And then in verses 23, 24, and 25, we see that God remembers his covenant. God remembers his covenant. Two simple ideas from our text. God crafts his servant God remembers his covenant. So let's think first about verses 11 through 22. God crafts his servant. We saw the oppression of the Hebrew people in chapter 1 at the hands of wicked Pharaoh. And then in the first half of chapter 2, we we zoomed in on one particular Hebrew family and the great faith they demonstrated in God and in his covenant. That's what we thought about uh, not last weekend, but two Lord's Days ago. Remember, baby Moses sent down the Nile in a basket. As his parents have sought to preserve him for some three months, now they can keep him safe no longer. They put him in the basket, coated in tar and pitch, floating down the Nile. And by whom should he be found but the daughter of Pharaoh himself, who, in God's delightful providence, raises Moses in the imperial palace and even ends up, we were told, paying Moses' natural mother to nurse and care for her baby boy during his early years. Remember that preview of things to come. That's what he, uh, Hebrew literature loves to do. Certainly the book of Exodus loves to do it. Is the foreshadowing of further things. Later on, when they go through the Red Sea, when they exit Egypt, they plunder the Egyptians. Even in microcosm, Moses' mother getting paid, plundering Pharaoh's royal coffers, even in miniature. You see that in verse 14 as well. Isn't it lovely? Who made you a prince and a judge over us? They indignantly say to Moses. Well, just you wait, because that's precisely what Moses is going to be in a matter of years, a prince and judge over the people of Israel. Well, we we join the story in verse 11, and we've gone forward about 40 years here. Moses is a grown man now. We know very little of Moses' life in the in-between years. That's why we read from Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. Acts 7 verse 22 helps us a little bit. Stephen says, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians... And he was mighty in his words and deeds. Egyptian royal education was, as you might imagine, the best at its time in the ancient world, among the best. It involved training in mathematics, in architecture, in art, in military strategy, in politics. It was the very best that education could provide in those days. It was designed as an adoptive grandson of sorts, for Moses being raised in the imperial household. It was designed to prepare young Moses for mighty leadership. Little did Pharaoh know, of course, that God had orchestrated this training in leadership to be for a people of a different stripe. The irony of it all, that Pharaoh invests in and prepares and trains up his adopted grandson, and turns out those skill sets are used for his own undoing in a matter of decades. Now, if he was raised in Pharaoh's court... You might think, how would Moses have thought of himself as a Hebrew? Well, remember, from the first half of this chapter, God ensured that Moses was his early upbringing and his heritage was in the home of his Hebrew parents, Amram and Jochebed, where no doubt he would have learned about the covenant promises of God. He would have learned about the history of God's dealings with his people. Only later, sometime later, did his mother bring him to Pharaoh's daughter, later in his childhood. 
So infancy and early childhood, he would have had that Hebrew worldview and that Hebrew self-conception and that Hebrew heritage and that sense of Hebrew belonging. He would have had that tucked away in his psyche for all those years, even as he was being reared in Pharaoh's palace. And here, as we, in our, our, our passage this evening, <clears throat> God in his providence has now brought Moses to a moment of decision. Here's this man, born a condemned Hebrew slave infant, reared as a prince of Egypt, aware of, and perhaps even to some extent torn between these two identities, and then, notice verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, one of his brothers. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses, as he slays this Egyptian, he decides to stand with the covenant people. Now, many of you, like me, probably love good commentaries. Calvin, Matthew, Henry, we've all got our favorites. But when it comes to clarifying our understanding of Scripture, the very best commentary on Scripture is Scripture itself, isn't it? I love when New Testament passages comment on Old Testament passages and provide us with better understanding. For example, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, puts it this way. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Forty years, forty years, Stephen tells us, that Moses had been steeped in all the majesty and all the trappings and the allure and the power of the Egyptian royal court. But now the moment of decision has come. Which set of truth claims, which set of realities, which set of identities, if you like, is going to govern his life? One of the key lessons that God would have his people understand, and one of the lessons of this text that's before us, is that we must choose sides. Now, of course, as we mentioned in our last sermon, we are glad-hearted Calvinists. We are. We love Reformed theology because we love the Bible, and we believe that the Bible teaches that no man chooses God of his own free will because the natural man's will is in bondage to sin, and it's enslaved to sin, and it's mastered by sin, and we would never choose Christ if we are left to our own accord, dead in our sins. We are dead in trespasses and sin, Paul says, and God made us alive. Hallelujah. Nevertheless, Scripture is clear that Christians, believers, those who've been born again to a living hope, we are often inundated with temptations to choose loyalties other than the Lord our God. Believing people are often tempted, aren't we? And sometimes believing people even succumb to temptation and they follow and they value and they cherish. Pick your idol. Money. Comfort. Sex, prestige, influence, a good reputation, family, or things which are frankly just familiar and comfortable to us. We are tempted, and we often do value such things more than or in the place of the Lord our God. The shorthand word for that in the Bible is idolatry. It's idolatry. The fleeting pleasure of sin. Christians are vexed and we are tempted by these alluring baubles all the time. 
And so the lesson that God must teach Moses, and one of the lessons Exodus 2 would have God's people learn, is that we must choose sides. This is a concept, this is an idea that rightly belongs within the realm of sanctification. Right? This is not a matter of regeneration. We're, we, are not, we are not the authors of our own salvation. But having been brought to that living hope, having turned in repentance and towards saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, having grasped Christ by faith within the land of the living, if you want to use the language of the psalmist, the born-again people of God, when we are assaulted by temptations, we have a duty to choose the right. When, when presented with the option to spurn God's will and to spurn his commands, we must not. We must not do that. There is no middle ground. This is why we so often talk about mortifying, killing sin as part of our Christian growth and sanctification. That's why we use that language so much about being in a constant war with sin, waging war on our sin because it does love to rear its ugly head and it does love to get its hooks into us and it does love to lead us astray and allure us away from what God would have us do. We must ever be vigilant, must ever be on guard and ever waging war on against it. This is not unlike what the Lord Jesus says later on. This is not unlike what Moses' successor Joshua says in just a few chapters. What what Joshua would say to Israel, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites into whose land you've come. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose whom you will serve. That's That's what Joshua is saying to them. Are you going to serve the paganism in which you are steeped culturally, in which you are surra- by which you are surrounded? Or will you serve the Lord who is your Redeemer? Later, the Lord Jesus, Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon, money. Friends, there is no neutral territory. That is the gist of what Moses is, or rather, what Moses in Exodus is helping us to see, what God in Exodus is helping us to see. There is no neutral territory. We we cannot love the sin sick world with its fallen patterns and ways and at the same time wholeheartedly love the Lord. It must be, our heart must be fixed. It must be fixed. Who will have the affections of our heart? And maybe this is old news to some of you. But maybe this isn't old news to some of you. You We've got folks in our congregation who are, some of whom are fairly new Christians. You think of our high school students, some of our college students. You're going to face particular temptations. What what are you going to do when you're pressured to act in a certain way or to speak in a certain way that you know, that you know is contrary to the will of King Jesus? But it's what the crowd wants you to do. Right, your, your friends at school, your co-workers, some, some higher-up agency. What happens when what's right and what's popular or, or easy or comfortable diverge? You've got what's right over here, but what's easy and popular and comfortable going this way. Where does the loyalty of your heart lie? Yeah, you know how a lot of your friends are carrying on with their boyfriends and girlfriends. You know the kind of language that gets used. Some of it blasphemy blasphemously employing our Lord's name. You know there's things that you could do or say that would make you fit in better at work or in your neighborhood. Fudge that number. Click that website. Say this to that jerk. Use inclusive language. Affirm that lifestyle. 
reject God's clear instructions, conform to our social expectations, and it will go well for you. One of the applications from our text is the same application and challenge that God was teaching Moses. He must choose where the loyalty of his heart would lie. Would it be with familiar, comfortable, ensconced pagan Egypt? All that he'd known with all the luxuries and the attendant power that came with it and the privilege and the luxury and the ability and the opportunity? Or would it be with the people of God? And God isn't done teaching Moses yet, is he? You see, the day after Moses kills that Egyptian, he meets two quarreling Hebrews, and he tries to reconcile them. Verse 14, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. Moses' sin suddenly is exposed. Surely our sins will find us out. Numbers 32. One has to wonder if this very scene was replaying in Moses' mind when he was penning the words to Numbers 32, however many years later. And so, sure enough, Pharaoh learns about his crime, and Moses flees flees out to Midian. Once again, Stephen, Acts chapter 7, verse 25, provides helpful commentary on what's going on. Acts 7, 25, Stephen says, Moses supposed his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not. They did not understand. In other words, even though Moses had not yet been formally called by God to lead Israel out of Egypt, he'd not had that moment, that experience, confronted by the Lord God in the burning bush at Sinai, not quite yet. But according to Stephen, under the inspired ministry of the Holy Spirit, Moses had examined the providence of God at this stage, and he had concluded that God was raising him up to be a leader. So Moses took action. And and, and he assumed that since God is raising me up to be your leader, he assumed that his brethren, his kinfolk, the Hebrew people, would fall in line happily. Not so much. One commentator puts it like this. We cannot fight the Lord's battles with the world's weapons. Moses had to learn this. And we must also, if we are Christians, learn that though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Moses was acting independently, self-reliantly, with the logic of the world and the brute strength that is too often the world's strategy. And so God sent him into exile to learn the hard way. God sent Moses out of Egypt so that he might work to get Egypt out of Moses. Close quote. Could it be, brothers and sisters, that in the hard and in the painful, and dare I say even in the disciplining providences of God in your life, could it be that he's actually at work in those trials to wean you from the world and its ways, to teach you to fight the Lord's battles with the Lord's weapons. Think of it. We have any number of painful things that we are enduring. We could go around the room. Ongoing anger and hostility from our own families that some of us are subject to. Failing bodies, whether it's our own or a loved one's. We've got folks with... Frustration in marriages, we've got the ongoing ramifications that some folks are enduring as, as a result of past abuse. We've got discouragement and depression, and what do we do? We will try every pill, we will try every quick-fix seminar, every do-it-yourself book, every brand-new, manufactured, hot-off-the-press solution before we dare to turn to the old, familiar, simple, earthly, 
unadorned, unflashy means of the word and sacrament and prayer. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. We're not saying that if you sing a hymn, you'll be cured from cancer, or if you take the Lord's Supper, you'll get your old job back, or if you pray five times a day, your family dynamics will be healed and restored. No, no. The Lord God is no talisman or lucky charm. That there, there is no hack to force his hand to conform to our wishes. But what we are saying is that to do those things will knit your heart more closely to that of Christ Jesus. It will make you more fit for glory. And then it will recalibrate your priorities. It will wean you from the idols of this world and your own heart. And it will enable you to better press on, endure sore trials, and to live life in this world and ultimately will make you more fit to display the glory of your Savior and King. What if, what if the pain and what if the ramifications of sin, whether it's our own or somebody else's, what if those things in our lives were actually the catalyst the Lord was using so that we might become people of dependent prayerfulness, patiently resting on the Lord and on his timing? God shapes his servants. As with Moses, so with his church. Think of it, when someone wrongs you or when something goes bad. Let me just use myself as an example. Shame on me how, when I think of the possible solution to my scenario, how quickly do I instinctively turn to prayer? Is it number one on the list? It's not even number ten on the list. How the Lord must deal with us, if that's the case. How quickly we are to run to worldly solutions and worldly mechanisms and worldly tools to fight the Lord's battles. It's not to say that we don't take advantage of good medical care. It's not to say we don't take advantage of a good legal system when we need to. Absolutely, these are good gifts in God's common grace toward us. Of course they are. But in taking advantage of those things, why is it not that our first instinct, as opposed to our 40th instinct, is not to run to the Lord's throne of grace, to run to prayer, to run to his word, to run to his presence, to run to his people, to fight the Lord's battles with the Lord's weapons, as opposed to using mere worldly weapons to fight the battles that are in front of us. You can see God shapes his servants to learn this lesson. So with Moses, so with us. And you can see in Moses' case, he flees to Midian, and he's called again here as he, to intervene and defend the weak and the defenseless. This time, it's not some of his Hebrew brothers that are being beaten, but rather it's some young women who are watering their flocks, and they're at the well, and they're attacked by some shepherds. And Moses, this time, he does not kill, but he defends the weak. In fact, he even goes beyond the call of duty, and he waters their flocks. The book of Acts tells us that he was there in Midian for another 40 years. And you see these sequences of 40, 40 years in Egypt being reared, 40 years in the desert of Midian, and then 40 years later with Israel out in the wilderness. The late Jim Boyce put it like this. Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning something, and 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing, and 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be everything. Isn't that spot on? As there are no children without discipline, there is no Savior apart from suffering, and there is no crown without a cross. Such is the way of God's people. This is how God shapes all of his servants. He, he, he removes our dross, and in this life, in this light momentary affliction, he is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. 
You know, you look at the life of Moses and as you, as you step back and you think all that he's gone through and all the ministry to which God was calling him, and you think, who better? Who better to write the first five books of the Bible than one of the most highly educated men in all the world? Who better to stand defiantly before King Pharaoh than one who was raised in his own living room? Who better to lead God's people than one who was driven to utterly give up his own world-class royal skill set and his self-reliance and simply trust and obey God's instructions for delivering Israel? And to think, to think, this is what the Lord was up to in all the pain, in all the misery, in all the turmoil all those many years ago. Isn't our God marvelous? We should always come away from Exodus with that thought on our mind and that song on our lips. Isn't our God marvelous? Who knows what he's up to in the thick of your misery right now? I don't know, but he does. He's good and he's worthy. Let's trust him. God shapes, God crafts his servants. And then secondly and very briefly, God remembers his covenant. We see that in verses 23, 24, and 25. Poor Moses, he's gone from the imperial courts to out in the sticks in the middle of nowhere in about two weeks' time. He can hardly tell left from right and up from down. Why? What is the Lord up to? Pharaoh dies, verse 23, and the people of Israel groan and cry out for help under their terrible sufferings. It is a cry, we're told, that came up to God, and then we're told what that means, verses 24 and 25. God heard their groaning, verse 24, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He hears. He sees. He knows. And he does all of this, our text says, because he remembers his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God had promised Abraham to be a God to him and to his children and to his children's children and to give him a land and to multiply them and make them a great nation and through his seed to bless the nations of the world. But when they came down to Egypt, they were not a great nation, were they? They were 70 people. But now they've multiplied and they've prospered even amidst terrible suffering. And so now, as God has been working to keep his promises all along, he prepares for them a deliverer in Moses that his covenant may be fulfilled that he might indeed lead them from slavery and into the land that he had promised to give them. Now surely it must have looked to the Israelites like God had forgotten them. Approaching some 400 years in slavery, God's not listening. All those years of suffering and groaning and praying and crying out, pleading with the Lord, God was doing nothing, it seemed. But all unseen, far from mortal eyes, God was orchestrating all things together. Pharaoh's wickedness, midwives' defiant faithfulness, the princess and her compassion, the royal education of Moses, even the murderous actions of Moses, and 40 years of being humbled in the desert. And all of these things combined together, God ordered and superintended and worked and wove to keep his promises to Israel and to prepare for them a deliverer. And that is how God continues to keep his covenant with us. Not so much by fixing our problems, though often he does graciously intervene to fix our problems, but rather he keeps covenant with his people. Not simply by giving us a solution, but by giving us a savior. 
He prepared Moses for Israel, and he has prepared Jesus Christ for you, Christian. You can be sure that our covenant God hears and sees and knows because of the cross, because he has prepared a deliverer, because Jesus Christ has come. He can save you from your sin. He can strengthen you in your sorrows, and one day he will come again in glory to deliver you forever from all suffering. God will keep his covenant with you, with his bride, with his elect, with his seed. And he has provided a perfect deliverer for you in Jesus Christ. He has proven, he has proven that he is faithful to his promises. And so, beloved, as you cry out to the Lord, as you live life, as you press on, may your faith be bolstered as you see the cross, as you see the empty tomb, and the one who sits on the throne your sufficient Savior whom God has prepared and provided to deliver you. God remembers his covenant. Are there any sweeter words? He hears, he sees, he knows. God remembers his people and God remembers his covenant. Bless the Lord. May God bless the ministry of his word to us tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that indeed you have provided for us the Lord Jesus Christ. You've prepared a deliverer. You've prepared a savior. A high priest able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. A perfect and sufficient deliverer. We rest on him. Meet us as we do. Amen.